Hello. Before we begin the podcast, I would like to acknowledge that False Dichotomy is recorded on the treaty lands and territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, and that we recognize and uphold the significance of the Dish with One Spoon Covenant. We acknowledge that this land is home to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people, and we respect and honor their relationship with this land. We are grateful for the Indigenous people who are stewards of this land and have taken care of this area for thousands of years. As we conduct our research or create art, we are grateful for the opportunity to use these lands and recognize and appreciate the historic and ongoing relationship our Indigenous neighbors have with this land. We promise to honor and respect these lands and the Indigenous people who call them home, and to always continue to learn and work towards reconciliation. Thank you for listening. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of False Dichotomy. For those new to the series, I'm your host, Sam Majoros. I'm a wildlife biologist and bioinformatician, as well as a writer, actress, and general theater person. In this podcast, we bring together scientists and artists to showcase how fun and approachable science can be, and also how important and valuable art is, as well as to discover new ways to communicate science using art. So the theme for this episode is grad school. I'm a graduate student myself, uh, and I'm currently doing my master's in bioinformatics at the University of Guelph where I focus on developing programming pipelines to help answer questions related to Arctic ecology. So grad school certainly has its challenges, whether you're a science major or an arts major, and a lot of exciting work is being done by master students. So on this episode, we have two wonderful science master students and two amazing art master students. So our first guest is Madison Arsenault. Maddie is doing her master's in science in pathobiology at the Ontario Veterinary College here at the University of Guelph. Our next guest is Nadine Ibrahim. Nadine is doing her Master's of Science in Bioinformatics, also at the University of Guelph, and we're actually part of the same lab. Now we'll jump over to the artists. So first we have Graham McClelland. Graham is doing his Master's of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at the University of Guelph Humber. And last but definitely not least, we have Jess Bertrand. Jess is doing her Master's of Arts in Expanded Media at the Drumstadt University of Applied Science in Germany. So hello, everyone. Hi. <laughs> hello. Hi. So welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to jump into things. Um, before we do, I'll just recap briefly how the podcast works. So we'll spend some time talking to each scientist and artist about the work they do and the areas of their fields that they're passionate about. And then at the end, they'll have some time to work together to create a new way to communicate the science that we discussed using the skills of the artists. So this could be a pitch for a play, um, an art piece, something musical, really just anything you can think of. So Manny, do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, would you mind um, telling us a bit about what work you're doing, what your master's is kind of focused around? Yep, definitely. So I am in the Department of Pathobiology here at Guelph. Um, and my project focuses a lot on bioinformatics. So I'm studying the microbiome in pigs and microbiome are all of the little kind of bacteria that live inside and on pigs. So I'm looking at little baby piglets and how um, the bacteria kind of develops on them and starts growing on them. And then whether the bacteria that's on them kind of will impact their growth later in life. So obviously to do that, you use a lot of computing. Um, So my whole project is on computers. And 
yeah, it's been pretty good so far. Before I started my master's, I didn't know how to code, and now I've started coding, and super interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. What has that learning curve been like, kind of learning to code and figuring that out? <laughs> um, I'm still on the learning curve, definitely. Um, yeah, I was really nervous. I feel like in undergrad, I didn't really get a good introduction into coding, and then when I started my master's, I was slightly nervous. I didn't fully commit to the bioinformatics. That's why I'm in pathobiology. Um, but I thought it was a good opportunity to start learning about how to code. Um, I also, quite honestly, I thought it would give me a leg up when I started applying to jobs. Um, but the learning curve has been, it's been approachable. You definitely have to put work in. And I think every day I'm still learning, but it's nice to kind of be on the learning path with other people so you can bounce ideas off of other people and kind of learn from other people's coding styles. Um, so yeah, it's approachable. You can do it. It's a lot of work. And you keep learning every single every single day, which is one of the reasons why I like it. I feel like approachable is such a like tactful word to use. It's like it <laughs> yeah. was pause. Approachable. Yeah. Well, I was so scared to learn like in undergrad, the the only experience I have is just like so difficult and and learning how to like I don't crack code is hard. So yeah, I feel like everyone's just scared to do it, especially when you're a biologist, you're kind of scared to learn how to code. But anyone can do it. It's just you just have to put your mind to it. Well, it's like learning I a new language as well. Like mm -hmm. I I did like a very small project where I used a a platform called Twine Twinery. It's just like narrative storytelling. Um, with just lots of link branches and even that like I, I copied and pasted everything so I was like I cannot write this <laughs> on my own how do I do anything and then it just became like someone else must have thought of this before me and it's like oh thank goodness because I don't know what to do from here um, so that's my like minimal experience of of trying um, but it was definitely limited I never went too far with it afterwards yeah yeah, no, I've definitely found that as well in undergrad. They don't really, I feel like they show you R and they just kind of let you do, they don't explain it that well, I found as well. So I definitely took like a crash course before getting into it in my master's to like understand what was happening at all. Yeah, my first so are couple classes. Are you taking classes, a course, a course in coding or are you self-taught? I, I took some courses when I first okay. started. Um, yeah, I took... Uh, two courses I think when I first started to learn a little bit and then from there you just kind of pull the code that you need or or the coding skills that you need from those courses and then you kind of deep dive into other resources so the course ta taught a lot about how to like access resources and even just introducing you to a coding language so you know what's out there and like how to access tools um, and then once you know the tools you need, then you kind of have to dive into them more by yourself. Google and the internet is like your best friend as you're coding anything. Because, um, yeah, if you have a problem, somebody else also has probably had that problem. And there's something out there to help you figure it out and dive into a bit more. Or at least like what packages to use and things like that, too. Just. And I almost feel like undergrad students aren't as be like best supported in most institutions, or at least the institutions I've been at mainly because there's so many of them. A lot of them are there just because they have to, because, you know, the system we have is that you need an undergrad to get any kind of meaningful job. Um, and so once you're a master's student, I almost feel like 
the resources are better available, or at least I'm in fewer classes so I can dedicate more time to picking up new skills. So that's I, that's kind of a benefit I've had in the masters is as busy as I am, <laughs> I've still have more time than an undergrad where I'm trying to juggle five classes, four or five classes. Now I'm just trying to juggle two. And yes, the demand is higher, but there's still more time in the day and I can figure out, like I don't have to be physically on campus in the classroom more. So I don't know, maybe maybe that's just also a difference. Maybe there's just more resources available for master's students. I don't know. That's not, <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's fair too. You do have more time as a master's student to focus on the things, I guess, that are really relevant to you or that you're really interested in. So you can, yeah, deep dive into stuff like coding or other skill sets without being distracted by maybe like another course that's required, but isn't super needed for your work specifically. So kind of how did you get involved with the, like the pathobiology route and like looking at microbiomes? Like what was kind of your journey to that project? I love to talk about this. <laughs> so Perfect. in undergrad, I like, I am a massive ecology nerd and like I, I love to just go outside and like look at bugs and look at trees. Um, so in undergrad, I focused a lot on ecology and evolution and wildlife biology. Um, and then I also found myself, I, I took a lot of electives in immunology and microbiology. Um, which they all are biology, but they're they're very different fields. Immunology is kind of more, I don't know, human and medical and like how your body reacts to disease. So then I wanted to try merging the two interests. So disease, immunology, and wildlife. Um, so I looked around for different um, master's programs and there was a couple on bird disease that I was interested in. So I emailed a couple profs at the OVC. Um, and also, I kind of knew that I wanted to study at the OVC because the Ontario Vet College is kind of where you go to study animal disease. Yeah. Um, so I got in contact okay. with the prof. Um, and then she actually set me up with a, a kind of a group interview with three other profs at the Ontario Vet College. And they all pitched ideas to me. And this was actually kind of the first time that bioinformatics was pitched to me. And I didn't really ever think about doing bioinformatics before. I just wanted to study animals and disease. And then this prof said, I have a bioinformatics project that you could work on. It involves pigs, but it's pig disease and pig microbiome. So it's a little bit different, but I think you'd be a good fit for it because you have a good background in immunology and like animal physiology and stuff. So yeah, I never thought I'd be working on pigs. I'm not a huge, huge agriculture person. Like I've I've like tickled in in vegetarianism and veganism, so I don't love I don't love pigs, but um, I really love the bioinformatics, and I love like pigs impact like human health, pigs impact wildlife health, um, and they're kind of like vectors for disease. So I find that really interesting. Yes, yes. Also, friend? I've heard that pigs. Like in studying pigs, there are a lot of similarities that can be drawn with humans. Now, is that just kind of like an old wives tale that I've heard? Or are there actual like parallels between pigs and humans? There's like, there's a lot of parallels. So pigs, like pig organs can be transplanted into humans, which is like very 
similar. Their digestive tract is pretty much the exact same. Um, their hearts are pretty much the same size. I think it has to do with size and their like physiology. So yeah, pigs are really close to humans. So I guess my work can also be translated into like human research, but but yeah, bioinformatics came to me. I didn't seek it out. And yeah, I like animals and I like disease. And I feel like this is a good bridge of them. Yeah, that's awesome that you found something that kind of like works with all the different interests and things like that. And you get to hang out with like baby pigs. That sounds like a pretty cool job. Yeah, I did. I didn't collect any of the data. I just basically walked in and they said, here's a here's a chip with data on it. You can have it. Ah. And then oh, they told okay. me how it was collected. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. See, when I, when I heard like studying microbiome, I think of like studying feces, like to see all the like bi bi the ah. bacterial composition of the intestine. Like I know that's how they do it in humans. It's like hmm. so. I'm, when you're like collecting the data, I'm just picturing like <laughs> you know, poop. I read yeah, that. That's it. Data. <laughs> I, yeah. I read a book somewhere that like um, describing like during the pandemic, it was about describing how like disease and bacteria like in like, I think it's like, like, I don't know, like in like big feces of like, I don't know, I think of like a pool of feces for for pigs and animals on a farm where it can actually be quite toxic. And that if you just let it sit, the bacteria so many times, like it's actually really intelligent and then that like shows how people something of showing like how how viruses and these kinds of parts of like your body are they can be really really smart in evolving and it, like mm -hmm. something along lines of comparing it to like some kind of computer system that like this would be much more advanced in a way of just letting natural processes be rather than just a computer generated program but that's like all i know so you can tell me if that sounds accurate or not yeah um yeah so Graham, I was trying to look cool, but I, I do study pig poop. It's straight up <laughs> pig, pig poop samples. Um, yeah, my profs collected the pig's poop samples and processed them before I got there. But yeah, it's fully pig poop. Well, you, um, you still look cool. For <laughs> science. Yeah. And yeah, it, it sounds like not glamorous, but if you think about like in one scoop of poop, there's like a million bacteria living there so you can think bacteria are organisms right so i mean you could conceptually think of a bacteria as an animal right so it's mm -hmm. a it's an ecosystem um with like a million different organisms in it and these million organisms they all interact with each other but it's on such a micro level that we actually can't see how they're interacting so if we go into a forest we can see like moose and bears and wolves interacting and kind of figure out what relies on what so we can figure mm -hmm. out food chains and system interactions and how an ecosystem reacts to stress or how an ecosystem reacts to one species being eliminated but within a microbiome because it's inside of like a pig stomach we can't actually see it and it's too small we can't we can't like observe it so my research is really like digging in to find out like who is even there, like what organisms are even present. And the field's kind of not at the place yet where we can figure out the interactions that are going on. Um, but bacteria are, I guess you could say smart, like they they cross talk a lot and they can like 
interact and um, transfer their genes to each other. So if you did, like, just to go off what you were saying, if you did leave, like, a pot of poop, like, that group <laughs> would talk to each other and they could, like, transfer their genes and, like, outcompete each other. Like, there is a whole ecosystem interacting in there. We just don't see it and don't think about it. Wow. So you look at poop and see poop, but I look at poop <laughs> like an ecosystem. <laughs> wow. Well, that see, just that's puts what makes it so cool. Mm-hmm. Just makes you think of how much that we just don't see in the world that is just creating its own universes and environments that is just like too small for the human eye. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's also interesting, like in bioinformatics, like we talk about big data a lot, mm-hmm. but like a lot of the time big data comes from really small things. So like all of my study organisms are little tiny bacteria. But the amount of data I have on my computer is just incomprehensible. Like I, my computer just crashes whenever I try and see <laughs> my data. So it's interesting how like big data comes from these really small little organisms. Yeah, microbiology, but big data. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, for sure. A lot of like the things we have the most data on are like the smaller things, or even like insects and things like that too. That's huge amounts. The bigger things, even though we can see them, are sometimes harder to, to study. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we will do one more question. So a lot of people of interest both in arts and in science. So are there any arts you're involved with or that you really love? I wish. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so not an artist. <laughs> like the field of art, like I love consuming art. I love consuming mm-hmm. all kinds of art. Um, but yeah, actually creating art, I just, all of it seems really difficult to me and I've never actually like tried to create any kind of art. I just am more of a consumer. Um, so yeah, there's no art that I'm particularly involved with except singing in the shower. <laughs> well, that counts, I think. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> I'm a self-taught singer. <laughs> exactly, own <What>? it. <laughs> Good. What kind of art do you like to consume then? Um, hmm. Definitely, I like music. I listen to a lot of music. Um, but I also really, really like theater. Like, I really enjoy going to, um, like, productions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And all throughout, like, high school and undergrad, I would attend, like, any theater show I could. And it was, yeah, it was really weird because in high school, obviously, like, I didn't participate in putting on any of the plays, but anytime the theater group put on a play, I would always attend. And like, yeah, I love I love consuming theater. I love being in a theater. And like, I think what actors do and directors and producers and whatever, so cool. <laughs> I can never do it. I think it's so interesting. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, theater is probably my favorite one, but it's my I don't consume it as often as I consume music. Love, love to hear that. We've got- yeah, you're in the right crowd to say that. <laughs> okay, so we will jump over to our next scientist, Nadine. Hi. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about what you're working on and the research you're doing? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm also in bioinformatics. Um, my kind of focus is more on like machine learning and um, working with uh, that to kind of be able to detect errors in DNA. 
Um, so for my project, I'm looking at like five different machine learning algorithms and looking at different animal groups to work with, uh, looking at like a barcode, which is kind of like an identifier that can identify like what the animal species is. And um, with sequencing, sometimes they create errors when they're sequenced. So I want to see if like machine learning algorithms can be able to detect that. Uh, so I'm just looking at a few and kind of looking at kind of, it's kind of more just like an exploratory approach where I'm like just seeing like which are better than others and um, like looking at also like some animal groups have more data than others. So obviously that takes into account which is better. So just kind of exploring it and seeing overall like what is the outcome of it all. Can you explain a bit more about what like machine learning is and like the algorithms you're kind of using? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I am also, I kind of came into this as like kind of a beginner. Um, so like I wasn't an expert in uh, bioinformatics or machine learning at all. I kind of entered this master's kind of to learn about it. Um, so with me kind of, I use more packages that have machine learning algorithms that you can use. Um, and then use it with your data. So it's not like I'm actually creating these algorithms myself <clears throat> or like coding them. That's something that maybe like an engineer would do or someone who's like a computer scientist would do. Um, but yeah, so like often when you hear machine learning, it's <clears throat> it's kind of like a buzzword. Um, people who use it, like me, who are kind of just using packages, we're not coding that stuff. We're kind of just using it, tweaking things within it and using it with our data to kind of work with it. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, it's kind of like a very small percentage of people who really kind of like code machine learning algorithms and things like that. Um, I guess you could say it's kind of like math, like they kind of just it's it's algorithms that kind of work with data in a way that kind of can figure out patterns in it and things like that. And each algorithm is different in the way that it works and different sort of functions that it works with. And that's kind of, I guess, um, uh, if I simplify that explanation of it. I'm sorry I'm coughing a lot. I'm a little sick, so that's why I was a little bit on mute because I kept coughing. Over yeah, that, that's okay. No worries. And yeah, that's for sure a nicer thing about, yeah, like the packages and stuff that are available. Is that even, because I definitely yeah, don't do any of the behind the scenes. I use a little bit of machine learning in mine too, and I don't, I don't do any of the in-depth stuff. It's just like yeah. using what other people have done, which is very nice that other people have done it. Yeah, there's there's a lot like there's a lot of packages, especially in Python, I guess. So like if you want to get into like machine learning, Python is a great language to learn for that. R is, I guess, more for statistics. A lot of biologists use it. It's really great for creating like amazing figures and stats and things like that. But uh, I'd say Python is a lot better for like the machine learning stuff for sure. Cool. So do you either use like a mix of Python and R for your project or? Yeah. So. I guess mostly for kind of um, like kind of working with the data filtering and like creating a data set that's good to work with and then I move over to Python and then use that data set that I made in R to kind of work with the machine learning algorithms and everything kind of becomes like repetitive in a way like once you kind of have like your main code down it's a lot of just kind of like repeating processes and tweaking little things here and there but uh, and that's kind of one of the fun things about it is like once you kind of have most of like your hard like coding work done it's a lot of it's just like running pipelines and it's it's very simple from there and then just kind of analyzing your data are you looking at any particular like taxa or groups or anything for your project or is it kind of just the pipeline designed to be more broad across yeah um so for mine i'm working with three so uh, there's tardigrades and kinodermata and 
uh, I forgot which one. I'm like looking at one currently, but I forgot what the name it was. But yeah, just I pick three randomly, and that's kind of what I'm working with. At the end of the day, it's just looking at the DNA of it. Um, but yeah, so those are three that I'm working with, and yeah, I kind of what kind of guided me in the direction of bioinformatics was like um, in undergrad. I also did research, but it was more in kind of like a wet lab setting. So hmm. you call like bioinformatics a dry lab, and then like when you work in like a lab with like you know the typical lab with like chemicals and things like that, like that would be like your wet lab. Um, but yeah, it wasn't really for me. I found that everything was very slow and I, I just, a lot of the like um, like lab techniques and things like that, like you'd mess it up and it was like a month of work and you had to redo it. So that's kind of what appealed to me about learning bioinformatics is kind of like being able to kind of work with stuff more efficiently and getting gathering data more quickly and things like that. But yeah, and there's also like similar to Maddie, like, you know, almost like a, a vegetarian, vegan type of person. So I knew that if I was going to continue in the research path of like wet labs, I would have to eventually work with animals. And like, I saw like some of the stuff that like graduate students had to work with, with like mice and things like that. And I'm like, I, that's not really for me. I can't do that. So I, that's kind of what got me in the direction of coding. Jess's eyes say everything right now. They just like <laughs> went wide in that way that you do. I've noticed that. And... <laughs> It's just like, it's such a different world for us artists. It's completely, talking. hearing you talking about coding and animals, I'm just like, I have no <laughs> idea. And I, I, when you're like, oh, when people in undergrad like study animals, I'm like, what do, what do you mean they look at? And I don't know, I, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, for the first time I ever like like met my advisor in undergrad for like the lab I was working with, like the first thing I remember was like some girl coming up, she's just like, um, okay, so we're gonna sacrifice the mouse now. And I was like, oh my god, like people are just killing mice in this lab. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, so I don't know, you see a lot of weird stuff like that, and I was like, this is not for me. Like I, I guess I recognize the importance of it, but it's just not for me. Like okay. I can't do that. The only thing I have in my head is like those high school like science classes and movies where they're dissecting frogs and like I think there was at some point like some science thing where they had like the eye of a horse and I was like no yeah. no thanks <laughs> that, that was like as like I, I knew science wasn't for me and seeing that I was like mm, this makes yeah. me sad yeah. yeah it is pretty cool though I've, I've dissected the eye of a horse before it's very interesting <laughs> Oh, yeah it's, it's I think if like you have like a technical understanding of things then I think it maybe takes away from maybe the gore of it where you just come at it from like an eye of understanding rather than it being something like like more gruesome I guess I think it, I guess it just depends on the perspective you come from yeah it definitely depends on like positionality and stuff like we're being like a student at the OVC obviously it's a veterinarian college mm -hmm. um so a lot of the folks that work there are vets um but unfortunately a part of being a vet and a part of learning like you, you do have to sacrifice animals sometimes. And that's not to say that it doesn't come with like a massive amount of ethics. Like mm. they're, they're not sacrificing animals for no reason. Like there's there has to be a good reason why you're doing this. And a lot of the times, yeah, yeah. It's it's still sad. It's still very, very yeah. sad to think about, but it, it really comes down to like positionality and like your ability to think about why, what purposes is this animal serving? And like, is it is it worth it? And like, being super respectful of the life of the animal while you're conducting the research on it like i don't mm -hmm. think that's like one thing all biologists have in common is we're never ever disrespectful to animals like we 
most of us love animals. Um, yeah, so there's there's a huge amount of respect for all animals mm -hmm. in biology, even like the tiniest like copepods, like little small <laughs> shrimps, like we still respect them. And that's like a big uh, idea that's in the lab always. Mm -hmm. Is there a sad. point where like there are moments where if like an animal is suffering, is there a point where there's there they use animals that are the, like they take samples from from things like that are like to save them from suffering you 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 and then you use that for science or i don't know i'm just curious um yeah so my um yes to answer your question my okay. one of my advisors he's a post-mortem veterinarian so post-mortem is after yeah, death yeah. um and so he kind of leads the dissections from my understanding at ovc mm -hmm. Um, and all the animals that they use for dissections, they're, they're not sacrificed animals. They're animals who have died like okay. from other causes. So if someone, if a random person who owns a horse has a horse who's passed away, then they'll transport it to the OVC so that it can be used for dissection. So it's kind of like donating a body for science. Okay. Um, yeah, there are sometimes like where there's other research going on and they're trying to, um, for example, in pigs, they try to like infect them with certain bacteria bacteria so that one they can study an infected pig and sometimes unfortunately when the pig gets infected it uh, passes away so those okay. those pigs they would then use for for dissections yeah I see. so it's okay. it's not like we're just going to sacrifice a pig to dissect it the, the only dissections that are done are on like animals that have died from natural causes i see okay yeah it kind of reminds me have any of you heard of like body worlds i don't know if you know okay because like i went to the one in germany so it's like kolpevelten and it's basically people donate their bodies for science and it's literally like it goes through like a rigorous process of like going through um like you basically plasticify you get plasticified you get like i don't anyway it's a whole thing but it's basically a whole museum where you just get to see like actual body parts of people <laughs> like in different positions and it explains like it shows you like you know the lungs of someone who has smoked and who hasn't and like just the the differences of yeah, it's just it's very, very interesting and goes into like what people will do for science and like understanding the human body. So it kind of reminds me of like giving respect to the, to the people who have chosen to like give their bodies for science in a in a way that like will help humanity understand themselves better in a way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's not like always like the most, I guess, fun part of science to think about <laughs> stuff like that, but in order to understand some of the more physiology or like effects of diseases and stuff like that. You do have to have some elements sometimes of like working with mm -hmm. real animals and things, but there's always like a lot of, yeah, ethics, a lot of forums, a lot of like paperwork. It's not like taken lightly. Like, like Maddie said, a lot of like respect mm -hmm. for, for the organisms. That and I think that's sure. really important to communicate. And like, as you talked about, like how important it is for, for scientists to have like way venues of communication. So things are, like easily understood by people. I think actually talking about these things, even though they're uncomfortable, is actually really beneficial because it kind of takes away the, I don't know, the mystique of the word scientist. For people who are like, oh, scientists, I don't know. Like there's so much in the pandemic that people have been like, oh, I don't know, what do I, what do I know? What is true or all these things? So it's kind of nice to like have open conversations about things to like hear about like ethics boards and these things of like huge respect for animal life because it kind of brings a lot of just, 
I don't know, it opens the doors for, for things to not kind of kind of like destigmatize the the mystery or mystique of these things that most people don't know on a regular day basis. I think like a transparency and stuff is always really important in science too, like making sure people understand like fully what your methods were and like where your data came from and like all of that's like something a lot of scientists like should and like all often do like work really hard to make sure they're their research is as clear and as possible so that there's none of those like big question marks of like how did this happen and like things like that so for sure so we'll jump back to kind of more the bioinformatics and things like that so yeah Nadine what was your did you have coding experience and stuff kind of going into your master's or was that something you kind of learned um no, I, I learned it. Well. I didn't have any coding experience at all. Um, that's what's the appeal for me to kind of start this master's mm -hmm. in the first place. Like, I came from just like a general science background. Um, and I was like thinking, oh, like, should I do like a, you know, a second degree in computer science or something? Like, I really wanted to learn how to code because near the end of my master's, I just, I, that's just something I wanted to learn. I felt like there'd be a lot of job opportunities with it for me. Um, so I just kind of looked into graduate programs and Guelph was the only one that kind of had a bioinformatics kind of suited for people who are beginners. So that was kind of what appealed to me about it. I liked that there was like courses and thesis and I, I kind of, I asked a lot of questions before I started from people at the school and from like people who graduated like on LinkedIn and stuff. Um, a lot of people recommended to take the thesis pathway where you take some courses and then do a thesis. So I did that. Um, but honestly, in my opinion, I think the courses are very helpful. Like they, without it, you don't learn. It depends on your advisor, I guess. But it's like you learn a lot from them. You learn all the basics, and you learn a lot of things that you can use for your own project. Because um, for me, like I love my advisor, but a lot of it is very like she leaves it up to me. So for me to have to kind of figure out everything, it's useful to have the had the courses uh, to kind of like build up my understanding of everything. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why I did it, and uh, yeah, so learning basics is really important. It's it's hard to jump into a project without knowing basics, but uh, I think well, like it, it gives you a good, really um, a really good like beginner foundation when you start bioinformatics. So yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the master's program sets you up for success with like the courses they have you take at the beginning for sure, because like people come into that with all kinds of different backgrounds, so it definitely gets everybody on the same page. Yeah, it's very intimidating because there's some people who are like very good. Um, I, I found in my year there was people who are like all over the place. A lot of us were beginners though, but a lot of the people who were like expert and like everything was like super easy for them. It was so intimidating to be around them because like, you know, you, you were struggling with just like the basic things and they're kind of like, oh, this is easy. Like, this is already the undergrad. Like, it's not even that hard. Like, so it was kind of intimidating. You, you feel a lot of like imposter syndrome and stuff, especially at the beginning. I mean, even throughout, to be honest, but... Uh, you kind of just have to not compare yourself to others like that's like the biggest thing and you know I still do it like I, I'm always comparing myself but I'm always like you know like for, stop doing that like remember it's like your path and like everyone's like different so yeah it, but that's the thing about grad school everyone's from different levels so you have to kind of um, just like realize that and like not let it affect you. Yeah, for sure. That's good advice. I definitely think imposter syndrome is kind of overarching grad school theme, no matter where you are. Oh my God, so true. In my cohort, there's someone who's like, 
in her 40s, has published numerous children's books and was picked up by T. Geek to have her book distributed to, like, grade one students across the country. So I'm like, why are you here? (laughs) We're all, like, there's a lot of us who are, like, like, my cohort's quite young, so there's a lot of us who are either freshly out of undergrads, like me, or or who just don't have a lot of experience or also don't come from writing backgrounds. So there's a lot of us writing our first big projects in this program. But then there's some people who have published multiple books or have written multiple books and yet can be published. And we're like, okay, we're in classes together. All right. <laughs> All right. So I'll ask one more question. Same when I asked Maddie. So are there any arts that you're involved with or just that you really like to like consume and... Um, well, I mean, to be honest, like, lately, not so much, but in high school, I really was into theater, like, I loved it a lot. I did, like, plays and stuff, and I was part of Sears and things like that, um, so, oh, yeah, I, I really, liked, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, 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 we came close to competing against, like, we, we kind of, like, in our school, the year that I was in Sears, there was a lot of people who made plays, our play kind of made it to compete with other schools in Ontario, and then we didn't make it past after that because there's like an art school that we competed against and they obviously beat us but we, we did a good job i was really proud of it i also was the wicked witch of the west in a school play as well so oh nice you know, I, I love i love <laughs> yeah that's awesome peter is fun yeah. les miserables was like the first like musical that kind of affected me in high school and then you know i just kind of like loved it but i don't know ever since entering science i haven't really been doing much of that i just do kind of like school science stuff <laughs> but yeah I appreciate I appreciate the arts for sure that's awesome okay so maybe we'll jump over to the artist side of things now uh so Graham what have you been working on what are you doing in your master's what am I doing well I don't do anything interesting like science really but that's not to say that I do not research a lot like a whole heck of a lot because in my program we take both classes as well as um there's the thesis process and you can kind of choose whatever you want to do for your thesis whether that's a feature-length novel manuscript book of poetry uh feature-length screenplay or stage play stage play is what i'm doing um or a hybrid work or a memoir or a work of creative nonfiction otherwise. So there's a lot of flexibility within the program. Even if you enter as a fiction novelist and write something creative nonfiction, you can. Or if you enter as a playwright and then you start writing a novel, you can. But in the classes, like there's a lot of discussion in a writer's position in the world as well as a writer's relationship to craft and how these these two schools of thought are connected and have conversations with one another because honestly writing you can write about anything there is no limit to writing now my background is theater studies uh that's where i met sam and jess actually through courses i took through the university of guelph's theater studies program uh and it's it's really interesting because people can come to theater from all different walks of life i remember um sam you must remember james who was like joint theater studies and neuroscience. Um, like, 
I'm sure there are ways that these two could intersect. And actually, I've, I met someone else at the University of Windsor who has the same double major. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, apparently theater and neuroscience, it's like the combo that goes together like PB and J, apparently. <laughs> um, I, it's not for me. I'm really not a math and science person. I have not learned how to code in my master's. Uh, I have also um, not often excelled at science-based courses. Um, but that's not to say I don't include it in my writing. Uh, one in my fiction writing workshop uh, last winter, um, my I was tasked to writing you know a large you know five thousand word short story uh, that happened three times during the semester. So yep, master's life, <laughs> and um, I chose actually to lean back on something that I love to do, which is look at uh, symbolism in a work. Uh, when, uh, Sam, you were in uh, Professor Troy Hurry's scenography class, right? Doing mm -hmm. Herbertson? No, I actually wasn't, because I oh. was taking Judith's acting one. <laughs> okay, so in that we were looking at this opera by um, uh, Schoenberg, I want to say, Herbertson, uh, which it follows a woman walking through a forest, gradually losing her mind. And it's like 45 minutes, and no to... I think measures are the same through the entire opera and it's a very like experimental piece but I what I my lens into it was where are we a forest okay let's look up the symbolism of forests let's look up the ecosystems of forests let's look up what a forest is as an environment and I used that along with the kind of nightmarish quality of the German opera <laughs> to to create this kind of twisted forest ecosystem and include what are the plants that would be present? What type of forest is this? Where is it located? I created a whole like geographical map to figure out the woman's journey through different environments. And she starts in like a, a meadow and then she goes to a forest and then she ends up in a, in a thicket. And then, so it's kind of like going through the progression, but backwards because how I was seeing it is she's lost a lover, and so I was viewing it as she was going back in time, reliving her memories through the opera. But it was all portrayed through going from forest to thicket to meadow, and so nature was very much involved in it. So for this short story I wrote, I decided to write in a forest again, and all my characters were animals. So it involved me researching all these different animals. And the fun thing is, is that there was a place around the corner from where I was living at the time that had metal cutouts of animals on top of their sign, their fence posts, just decorative. You know, you can buy them at like any garden store. But there was like a metal cutout of an owl, a beaver, bears, uh, wolves. There was a rabbit that had like jagged teeth, like a Tim Burton looking rabbit. <laughs> and I looked at all these and I'm like, that's my cast of characters. Cool. So the beaver was my main character. I did so much research, like you can, like so much <laughs> research. I learned more wow. about beavers than I ever cared to know. Like, <laughs> I learned that the the lodge and the dam are different, and I thought that a beaver dam was just something of a hindrance, but it creates a whole ecosystem that supports like aquatic species, species that live at the water's edge, uh, predators who prey on species who live at the water's edge. And so I was creating this whole world, and I created a world where the rabbits were infected by a human toxin that was turning them into carnivores. And so they were 
disrupting the ecosystem of the forest because they were just starting to eat everything. And Whoa. the animals who were not corrupted had to rise up to counter this because rabbits breed like crazy. And so they were creating this whole rabbit army. And yes, this is very fantastical. And yes, I'm taking science and twisting it. Like all of, like all of, I started by researching the animals who were my characters. And I learned that beavers, you know, have two-year maturation, a 12-year lifespan. They create, like, when do they create dams? When do they mate? What are their mating practices? Where do they store food for winter? Like these, these sorts of questions. How strong is a beaver lodge? And I used all of that to create all my characters and my conflict. And so I really believe that arts and science can cross over immensely because as a writer, if you're going to write about a subject, the onus is on you to really know what you're talking about. <laughs> so all those arts people who are like, oh, I don't do science. I'm, I was one of them. And now I'm like, well, no, I need to have a very robust research practice, whether I'm talking about animals or humans, I need to know what I'm talking about. My current thesis play involves humans, and it's about interpersonal conflict. A lot of what I write is interpersonal conflict. I don't so much focus on writing climate fiction or like a lot of very like scientific. If anything, I look into more social sciences. Um, my current play involves someone dealing with their past traumas and abuse and the family dynamic that's evolved because of that. So I had to look into a lot of psychology, sociology, anthropology studies, more than scientific studies, because it was about trauma resolution and mm -hmm. the healing process. And so that's normally what I tend to focus on with my writing. But it was really fun to write about animals and feel like a scientist for once, because I was actually <laughs> looking up studies on beavers and what how they live and how they operate to create the structure of my story. Like the whole narrative structure was informed by my research process, which I have a very robust research practice. <laughs> I advisor uh, said, okay, you've done enough research. You need to stop now. <laughs> just, just write it. That's fair. I feel like people don't really realize maybe how much, research kind of goes into the more the creative writing as well. That that's a whole chunkier process that it, people don't realize exists. It's up to like 40% of the process because you can get lost in research and finding out all these things and all these things like to the two scientists in the room or, or three scientists, I suppose I should, I should include you in this, Sam. Um, <laughs> All the work you do, you like. My twisted creative mind can absolutely use all of this creating a story. There is no, there is no bit of data. Like you never know what I'm going to be like. Hmm, that's interesting. Like talking about viruses and how viruses cross over from animal, or the study of viruses and diseases crosses over from animals to humans. There's something there. There's definitely something there that I can see a creative project growing from and the connection between humans and animals. And, you know, I, I, I'm, there's something percolating already. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of store all the little information you get. And then when next time you're writing, just kind of pull that, pull that out. So yeah, are there certain kind of topics you find require more research? Like does the 
percentage of the research you do vary, like depending on certain things you're dealing with, or do you always have such a robust um, kind of research period? I think it really depends on the project because I also in my in a previous life before theater, I went to culinary school and I've worked as a chef for five years. So I'm very experienced with the culinary world. And one day I want to write a book about my experiences because there's been a lot of <laughs> weird things that have happened in kitchens and the culinary industry as a whole. And so for that, I'm probably not going to do as much research because I'm it's more of a memoir piece. So mm -hmm. I don't I'm drawing more on my own experience. So there's probably gonna be less research there. But I have done a lot of research previously on cooking styles and experiences in the restaurant industry, mental health in the restaurant industry. And these mm -hmm. is all going to be woven together into the piece. So I have that experiential knowledge base already. So I'm probably not going to lean too hard into interviewing, researching, adding to my knowledge, because that'll just make the piece too big. Mm -hmm. And you want to avoid overcrowding an art piece, because if you try and put so much in, people won't get any of it because they'll be like, oh, you have to pick up this and every line is important. And oh, did you remember that throwaway line we said in scene one of act one? Well, guess what? <laughs> scene three of act three, it's going to come back. <laughs> Take notes. Like, it's just, no, just no, don't do that. Um, but when it comes to interpersonal relationships, especially something that I have not personally experienced, I need to have my research, like, ironclad. I need to know what I'm talking about because if I'm talking about specifically trauma, as with my thesis, mm. I need to know what is correct. Because mm. if you don't present your material, your story with respect, you risk offending people. Mm. Worse, you risk triggering people. Uh, and we don't want that. Mm. So there's a line that was written in a play serving Elizabeth, which was performed at Stratford this past season um, by the great playwright Marcia Johnson. Uh, it was, uh, write what you know, research what you don't. And I really take that to heart because I believe creative writers with asterisk caveat, like within <laughs> reason, can write whatever they want. Like, I do not believe that me as a white Anglo-Canadian person could write an indigenous person's story. That's inappropriate. Absolutely. Like, full stop, end of discussion. Likewise, it's also inappropriate for me to write an immigrant story because I've never immigrated anywhere. When I do, maybe I can write that, but mm. inappropriate. But in terms of, say, beavers... <laughs> I don't know about beavers. I have no idea about beavers, so I researched it and learned about beavers. Or in War of the Worlds, which was put on in fall 2019 as the main stage production, I took an apiculture class and absolutely brought my love of honeybee biology into my writing. I had a character who wrote a monologue based on my own experience with honeybees in grade four, where some the kids, you know, we found a beehive on the playground. Everyone was was drawn to it because you're nine years old and of course and I was telling everyone please stop like just leave the bees alone let's tell the teacher it'll be fine but one of the kids who was known as a bully decided he was going to take a big piece of asphalt and knock the hive off of the tree mm. and I was right at ground zero 
advocating for the bees, being like, please stop. And so he knocks it off the branch. It, the hive smashes apart. The bees go into a frenzy. A lot of kids get stung. The bully in question got stung 13 times. We'll never forget Ooh. what he looked like screaming <laughs> at the face. But despite being right at ground zero, the bees all flew right past me. And I always kind of believe that they knew that I was trying to defend them. But, you know, that's beautiful. Again, that's me being nine years old. But I brought that into the play. And then for the installation art that went alongside the play, I definitely focused on, it was technology versus nature. I focused on the importance of honeybees. And afterwards, every member of the show got a little card of pollinator plants that they could plant to help honeybee populations, which are dwindling. So... Mm -hmm. I have my scientific niches, like, <laughs> I'll write anything and research. If I don't know something, it can only benefit me to know more. Even if it doesn't show up in the final script or the final manuscript, knowing just gives you that nuance. It gives you mm -hmm. that ability to speak and know. Like, I had no idea what the family structure of a beaver was. I thought it was just going to be, oh, there's the parents and there's the kids. No, there's two ranks of youngs there's yearlings and then there's kids so these are going to be different characters and i have to write their voices differently mm. and that is something i learned from research but it's not something i'm going to lay out in my novel and be like hey by the way <laughs> yeah you have a lot of the research and it like informs your choices but you're not necessarily writing it all out for like the reader to see it's more behind the scenes kind of and that's something we, like, writing about climate was brought up, and that's something that's been discussed because the University of Guelph is going to be starting, I think, a BFA program of mm. creative writing, and the focus is climate fiction, which climate fiction is interesting because it's very important, but you're writing about something that's on such a huge scale and that moves in such large steps. So you're saying, like, you're looking between, like, 50 years for little, little changes today to showing impact, it can be like 10, 20 years before you see the impact of decisions made. So how do you write something that moves so slowly with urgency? That's, that's a really great question climate writers um, discuss. Mm. But the issue I find with climate fiction, writers specifically, not the writing, the writers, <laughs> is that they want their works to be treated with the same respect that environmental science papers receive and they are different i think they're different and i think that there are people who would not be able to read environmental science papers and understand it and comprehend it and apply what's being said but these people could read a novel that tackles the same issues but in a more approachable way i think creativity the role of the writer is to make something that seems arcane and abstract and make it relatable. Make it something that you want to read when you're in the bathtub with a glass of red wine or before bed, before you go to sleep, or just because you are relaxing in the park and you bring your book. That's that's the role of the writer for me. Then hmm. uh, theater artists, that's something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, is, do you have any advice for anyone who's kind of looking to maybe wants to try to start writing or getting involved in that field? I'd say there are a lot of great resources you can find if you do not know the principles of writing, if you don't understand how to 
uh, writing narrative. There's a lot of a lot of great books. There's so many classes offered. A lot of them you don't even have to pay for through libraries, through um, university continuing ed programs. You can focus on whatever genre you want. Um, but ultimately, just read. Mm. If you want to start writing, like what you want to start writing, just start reading. Um, and actually, if you're going to get into creative nonfiction, that will involve a very specific research process. Uh, but fiction writers and playwrights, we need our research as well. And I really want to extend appreciation to the scientists in the room because you're doing the work that us creatives can't do. <laughs> and you're making it something that we can read, gain insight from, and bring into our writing so that our writing can be a more approachable version of what you do, which is very important, but something that can get the get the information out there to more people. So, read what you like to write. If you like if you like young young adult fiction, read young adult fiction. Read a lot of it, so that eventually you'll start picking up what do these writers do, and then mm, maybe I can try that. And don't be afraid to fail, because I am on my third draft of my thesis. I have changed it immensely from what I thought it would be. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Um, to quote a writer who I can't remember the name of right now, but the, <laughs> the waste paper basket, it was made by God for you, the writer. It was just you and the blank page. No one needs to know that you're writing absolute garbage. No one needs to know, but eventually you'll keep working on it. And eventually it won't be garbage and you'll be like to your friends, hey, you want to read this story I read? And that, so that's my big advice. Read a lot and don't be afraid to fail. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. And I just want to say too, yeah, you're like, oh, like, thank you to the scientists. But I think also, like, thank you to the artists as well. Because I'm sure there's lots of scientists who, like, maybe couldn't or wouldn't want to, like, write creatively and do that element as well. Like, I think it's a partnership and two different ways of thinking that both are super valuable and, like, needed. And I think that one thing that a lot of scientists lack is, like, is, like, an art ability because one thing that I get really really frustrated with is um like thinking about how to communicate science properly and a lot of people in the science field don't have a lot of those you know how to tell a story kind of mm. background and I think that that's really useful in communicating science and in even communicating science like to the public where we have these really complex topics and science communication within the community is a really big deal, like writing papers, obviously. Mm. Um, but that is our audience, our other scientists. And sometimes we get like stuck in this bubble where there's so much knowledge that's not getting shared. Um, and it, and I think, I think I see like more of a field moving towards mm. like making science more approachable and like, let's not sit in our labs and never talk about what we're doing and just keep it under like, uh, like just not tell anyone about it like we want to spread the information that's the point of doing research but we really do need artists help to spread knowledge in a way that's memorable to a general population and to spread knowledge in a way that like I don't know appeals to people's humanity in a sense mm -hmm. exactly what Graham was saying about like climate change research we can you can write a paper about it like a scientific paper about it and it could be like really hard hitting there has been so many scientific papers written about climate change and it's still not hitting but then you get some kind of like novel about climate change or 
novel about a, a big issue, and then people start reading it and passing and sharing this information. And it kind of, if it appeals to like more of their humanity in a way that, you know, factual science doesn't, I find it will stick with them a lot and like inspire a lot more change. Even like, yeah, I guess even like making documentaries, even though they're informational, they're still like very much like this is a story. And I feel like they're a lot more hard hitting than just publishing a paper. So in the way that you appreciate scientists for doing the research, like I think I super appreciate like artists and storytellers for helping tell stories and spread words because I certainly don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think there's been, yeah, like you mentioned, like a big push within science to work on like that communication aspect or even just you see a lot of like social media lately too, just the people like doing their best to kind of get the word out. They don't want it to be behind like that kind of wall or feeling inaccessible. Um, making it available to everyone is really important. So maybe we'll jump over to our last artist. So hello, Jess. Hello. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your master's and what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm going to give some a little bit of like context. Um, so I graduated with a, a Bachelor of Arts uh, in Theatre and Performance from the University of Waterloo, and I graduated right when the pandemic hit. So uh, my focus was very much live events, hosting, um, helping uh, produce festivals and performances and helping with front of house, like very much live events. And it made me pause for a year, uh, not having kind of context to be able to go into these places that I wanted to work because they just didn't exist. Um, so I spent time really waffling between what I wanted to do and eventually I found a program in Germany uh, and so I you know I just sucked up the courage and I moved there and I am working on my master's now and um, so expanded media uh, Gosh, it's such a broad topic when you hear expanded media, you're like, what is that? And like, I don't even know. I kind of just went into this program. I was like, that sounds cool. Maybe it can expand my uh, media skills to somehow do performance structures. Um, and so my focus is actually on story worlds. So the whole idea is how do you uh, create user-centric, um, audience-focused experiences? So, and it's not... Um, it's basically listening to what audiences want and what people want and trying to find a creative way to tell it in a story um, on multiple platforms. So it can be virtual reality, augmented reality, Instagram filters, um, live performance, um, and whatever is mixed in between. So it really is kind of what you make out of it. Um, the best way I can explain it is this program uh, really trains you how to do uh, design thinking um, to create concepts that you can pitch to then game companies, um, you know, for all these things that you've said of like, how do you communicate science? Maybe they would hire someone from expanded media to uh, create a user-centered way of communicating science to those things. So it's, it's kind of like bridging the gap between digital art and uh, what audiences want. So my goal was to go into this program with somehow uh, turning theater into uh, immersive theater, but also expanding my horizon from performance art because uh, I have more of my focus in acting. So a lot of the work we're doing is kind of expanding my 
just expanding my toolkit of like how do I create experiences that people want to uh, want to learn and want to enjoy and want to have access on multiple different platforms. Um, yeah, I think that that explained it fairly well. It's very, it's it's one of these things that is very, it moves a lot and it changes between mm. the terms and what people are interested in. It's a very international program and it um, really bases on like who you're working with and like a lot of the people are from various different countries, various different skill levels, kind of similar with Graham with like, there's a lot of professional people who are in this program. And you're like, why are you here? But then it's also nice to see that like there are people who also don't know what they want to do, but they think that immersive technology can kind of bridge the gap. Um, I'm not science based. I'm not technical based. Like I'm a super practical person that like wants to be like rolling on a floor somewhere with stories. <laughs> and then I was like, well, I can't roll on a floor anymore. I don't know what to do. So I guess I'm going to learn how to roll on a floor virtually. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's kind of where I've been searching, like treading water, like what am I doing here? Like I never intended to necessarily do a thesis. Like I never wrote a bachelor's thesis. I just performed in a play. I performed mm -hmm. and then they're like, great, good job. I'm like, that's it? Do I don't have to write anything? Like, here's a here's an article, here, read it. I'm like, okay. And then that was it. Like there was like, I, I swear I didn't get any supplementary like, readings re like it was super broad so I'm kind of going in of like I was thinking of skirting the thesis but then you know it's just a paper that you just work on and if it's mm -hmm. a topic you really love that's where I'm going so I'm going to somehow do immersive theater in some way that's my goal um yeah I think uh imposter syndrome I feel like it's one of those things of just feeling like you have no idea what's going on and it's just like I don't, I don't have any experience researching really. I'm very much give me a text, I'll memorize it, and then I'll figure it out along the way. Um, and I kind of this is kind of summarizes what I think this, my program is and doing graduate work is. I don't know, but I'm trying to find tools to help me get there. Um, and a lot of the work we're doing is very practical. Very like this summer, we're uh, the, the the brief is like a Midsummer Night's Dream festival, immersive festival. Like, okay and then uh we're going to be creating exhibits somehow oh, cool. so that that's the brief an immersive something so this can be like augmented reality mocap projection mapping immersive theme like it's broad so i think especially like what i'm learning now especially with being in a really broad program that it is what you make it mm -hmm. i haven't been uh like like I wanted to try a little bit of screenwriting and so I did a couple scripts throughout my throughout my process or I want I have some experience in acting so I've actually done some voice acting for other people's projects so I'm kind of keeping theater and keeping those skills of t storytelling while I'm working along so I found that it's very it's very fluid and I think these kinds of things are just falling falling where your interests are and just trying out and I really like how Graham talked about just like it's okay to have a fear of failure, but you just do it anyway. Um, and like, yeah, I think that that's kind of something I'm very scared of, but it's something that I, you know, there has to be some kind of risk in any kind of mm -hmm. creative thing you're doing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like uh, from a practical level, I'm very much not as like centrally focused on one specific thing uh, as an artist, especially right now. Um, so I'm kind of just a very put in a very practical 
maybe righty, maybe acty bucket of immersive expanded somethings. <laughs> I hope that is uh, that is acceptable there. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. No, that all seems really interesting and definitely like, yeah, suitable for the times, like kind of adapting to more the, the virtual, some of the more virtual aspects and things like that. It's definitely intimidating. Like there are a lot of people who know like virtual reality and coding mm-hmm. all these things. So like, I'm kind of on the periphery of all these going, do I do I do that? Do I, how do I, because <laughs> uh, a lot of the time so far, I've been like the writer of the group, um, manager of the group, and then there are other people who can do the physical implementing. So I think it's, it's learning where your strengths are in these like interdisciplinary teams and kind of like supplementing each other with that. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of figuring out where that place is and like the workforce of like creating experiences where like you have a team of international artists that can support each other. That's kind of where I'm going that I might not necessarily be like a leading researcher or creator of one thing, but help support organizations that work to, you know, just, I think a lot of it is giving people solace to just go through the difficult times because I have watched so much Netflix and so read <laughs> lots of books and these things. And I, I think you're right in terms of there has to be, there has to be so much art. There has to be so much like, <laughs> Graham, would you like to say something? (laughs) Yeah, finish your point, though. Finish your point. Okay. Um, There has to be, like, especially now, just interdisciplinary learning and appreciating what people can do because you need storytellers as much as you Mm. need people to collect data. It has to be both. And I'm kind of at this mix of somewhere in the middle of trying to create these things and make them work. But I'm undefined yet. And I think being undefined is scary, but it's also something where I think the world will maybe this is like too like positive thinking but I think the world the world will find a place for me in terms of where I can do these things depending on need um so there's a part of me that just trusts that depending on the people I meet it will be I'll go where I needed to kind of fill that fill that gap so yeah (laughs) I think that's a great way to look at it to think about it uh Graham yeah. <laughs> so there's something that I heard of like in the early days of the pandemic, but I ramble about this like crazy. Oh, do tell. So <laughs> it was it was something put out by the UK government, and I th- want to say it was like the finance minister or someone someone mm. high up posted like posted saying like artists should retrain mm. because of the pandemic. They should retrain to. Um, digital or non-physical skills so that they can work and like yeah I guess essentially like the whole message was that artists are not essential and Mm -hmm. we are not valuable so we should go to do something that is valuable like finance law um marketing business of some kind yeah i'm wondering uh, the kind of backlash that that man got <laughs> I don't think oh oh <laughs> and also infographics where it's like here are essential workers here are non-essential workers yeah and artists were listed as non-essential okay yeah. excuse me you said you watched so, so much netflix during the pandemic as most of us did who do you think makes your netflix not you specifically the proverbial <laughs> Like, people are, like, people, like, in these times, lean on artists for everything. Who do you think designed the desk that you're sitting at? Or the Mm -hmm. computer that you're working on? Who do you think made the Netflix you're watching? Who designed the bed you sleep on? 
who yes. designed the couch that you are you are lazing on, complaining about not being able to go out, who made the art that you hang on your walls, mm-hmm. who who wrote the books that you're reading, who does it's all life enrichment, all it, creating these things that are just so soul filling, like it's soul food. Like uh, when you have like the basic necessities of life, there's a point where like now there's so many people who are who you know we don't need to all go hunting for food now. And there's a point where even then in these times we are all like. What do we do now that like food is cooked and like oh no no oh hey there's a funny shadow on the wall haha let's all go watch that and it becomes like this huge bonding experience with people like one thing I've really seen within this program so far is just like stories are central to everything they're they're we're we're telling stories to each other now this is something you know when you're in the car and you're talking about like a breakup or some you know moral quandrum you're you're thinking of it's always telling a story to other people. And people are always engaged in wanting to know oh, what, but what happened next? So it's kind of taking these like natural things of like people being curious and having these having so many emotional um, emotional what is this like needing to express these things that they just it has to go somewhere and it not everyone runs and researches and like that there's there's other ways to do that and I think storytelling like when I do have a lot of doubts about like my like of where I'm going because I am kind of fluid in where I am at the moment as an artist stories are always the thing where I'm like but there has to be storytellers there has to be someone by a fire and like it doesn't always mean that I have to be an actor on stage to do that it can be providing a structure framework that someone can then take and make something out of it you know like it can be in so many different ways and I think digital immersive poetry is a really fascinating art form highly recommend you look into it Oh, did you, so do you have an example of, of this or? Not offhand, but I, I <laughs> cool. will afterwards. I have a friend who has a lot of them and they've been great. Okay, cool. Like even that, you see, I didn't even know that existed, but people are creating these venues of communication to fill these things, to just try it out, which is so important. Like, I don't know where we're going to go like with technology in the next 50, 100 years, but like, they're going to serve some ways with storytelling, whether it's um, science or arts or something else entirely. So it's kind well, of been like the central thing. And yeah, go. Cool. As, as soon as you create a new technology, I'm pretty sure artists will always look at how, how can I make stories with this? Like as soon mm-hmm. as Zoom came about and became so prolific, Zoom theater yeah. immediately yes. happened. I did research on the University of Windsor's Zoom Theater Festival. They completely pivoted their festival from in-person to originally written Zoom plays. Mm. And I was doing research on that about how the audience experienced those. But if you have a new technology, and I think that your master's is going to really help benefit you, like future, future-proof you in a way, <laughs> is that you'll be able to look at these new digital forms and think, how can a story, like there's a story here. And every medium has its best ways to be applied for storytelling, because there's always a story that can be told. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also this this thing of like, you know, everything has to be digital, everything has to be online. And I think it's going to be more powerful when it's mixed. Like everyone's like, oh, we have to do always Zoom plays. We always have to like one example I have is there's a performance uh, called Sensory Box. And I signed up for this. I was like, OK, it's on Zoom. I don't know. Sensory Box. Cool. And they literally sent you a little box just filled with random stuff. And throughout the performance, there was the performer 
uh, at a desk in, in, the, in the theater or in the wherever they were. And they had all these other desks, other people. So physical participants, like with social distancing and everything. So you could hear the people in the room with him. And you saw the participants online who were doing it as well. So it was like everyone was still connected, even though there was an in-persons part, uh, in-presence and online. And you had your own box. So it was like you're physically still participating in your own in your own world with these things so it, it like there are so many ways that you can meld them and i think you can't always take away the physical part of who we are i don't think everything will always be virtual because there's still like the amount of joy everyone has but like oh we're gonna do like in person this time like it's so like we want to be with other people like it, i don't we think we are social creatures yes yeah so I, I it will be interesting to see where this goes because i think there's there's so much to be said for people wanting to connect in various ways with interesting future you know metaverse kind of thing but also still in person like we've been deprived of that for two years so i think it's going to have to be mixed in with real life so we'll see how that um technologically advances uh pretty soon but yeah the, there's a huge importance for both yeah for i think sure. i think like what this whole conversation that you you have been having about the kind of evolution of of stories along with the evolution of technology in biology fields we talk a lot about that as well like the evolution of biology research i guess um coinciding with technology and how even like sam nadine and i we're all learning bioinformatics because that's where the technology is taking us so just in in kind of like a parallel to you trying to learn like virtual like how do we implement media into technology i feel like that's kind of also what we're doing like how do we implement computers into biology as opposed to just being like little biologists in the field so it's it's funny how like parallel this conversation is to conversations that i have so often with biologists when we talk about technology and it's nice to hear because like one thing like, I don't think these these departments, these disciplines should be siloed. Like, it just feels like, oh, if you're in biology, you must stay there forever. Like, no, not at all. Neuroscience can be th with theater as well. Like, who knows? Like, I, I watched a, a, a show, like, I don't know, five years ago, where it was all about, like, the theories of physics. It was a crazy opera <laughs> in person. It was crazy. But they had a whole section of just, like, scientists and there's one lady who literally had a whole monologue about Schrodinger's cat. And it was like, and it, she had like this whole wall of like physics and written and all these things. And she was explaining Schrodinger's cat and it related to the plot somehow. I don't remember. Then there was singing, but like. <laughs> then there was singing. <laughs> yeah, it was a little like crazy, but super cool. It was called Entangled, which I think really fits like with the whole theme. But anyway, like why, why aren't there more things like this, like intertwined? Because then people who are, like there were scientists who actually came to the show because there were science and they're like whoa i didn't think that could happen and we're like and neither did i that's pretty cool like why can't we have more schrodinger cats in plays like you know things like that of like they have to communicate because then it opens up this whole other world of possible venues for people to connect like i just think it's kind of natural for to, to blend these things it's just you have to have like the right people in the room to start blending them together and that's kind of like what I think you're doing with this podcast is just trying to break down those kind of silos, which I think is really, really cool because there has to be more venues for conversation with this. I think it's so valuable um, for learning and just in practice. So yeah, glad to be a part of it. 
And if I could quickly hop in, I think that anything can be made into a play, a book, a book of poetry even. Like, if you look at a subject like bioinformatics and say, oh, like, that's, that's science, that's nothing to do with art, you're not being creative enough. Like, clearly you're not paying attention because everything I've heard, like, just he learning that one scoop of animal fecal matter has, like, a million different bacterial <laughs> organisms. It's I crazy. have no idea. No idea. And I will never forget that now. I will never look at poop the same way. <laughs> Thank you, Maggie, for that. Um, or I think about with Nadine, your research in, like, like DNA errors. Like, I want to know more because I'm curious about how this can be used creatively because I mean we all know that like science fiction is super popular and the idea of like I think like I think my close association which is probably wrong but I think about like all the work on gene splicing and cloning which of mm -hmm. course has to have a background in DNA work so I'm just my creative juices are flowing right <laughs> now and I think like and I've even worked on a podcast that was a joint between theater studies and the Department of Geography at Guelph. Wow. And cool. I had no idea you could put these two together. It was all about food security. And you think that food security is something that's super dry and super boring. But what do we do? We created a post-apocalypse where there was a climate <laughs> crisis and food was like at an all-time low. But then there's a community up north, which in Ontario would be around Tobermory, that mm -hmm. managed to perfect food production, storage, and distribution, and their people are fine. But they put up this huge wall to protect themselves against marauders and people who would try and just steal their food. So they've been secluded for the past 50 years. And um, then the question becomes, do we open up and share our secrets with the people who are starving outside, or do we just take care of our own? And it was a whole mm -hmm. podcast that explored the scientists who created the technology that allowed for vertical farms. And they went joint, like park and parcel, with podcasts created by geography master's students about agriculture, food distribution, food production, all these subjects that you think are so boring and dry. But we made, we made a 10-episode miniseries wow. that tackled all of these issues, two episodes per subject. So if you're a creative person listening to this and you're thinking, well, art and science are just two diam diametrically opposed poles, you are not being creative enough. I will call you out. You are not <laughs> creative enough because science is so rich. And if you understand your world, you can write creatively better because what is art if not reflecting the world we live in? And if you're just trying to reflect your lens on the world, and that means like just the human lens, you're not being creative enough. You're like, you're not thinking in how animals see the world, or you're not thinking about what it means that human researchers sacrifice animals for science, to understand the world, to understand humanity. But you know, what is it like to be those animals? What would it be like to write poems from the perspectives of those animals? Like, mm -hmm. just ask more questions, be more creative, because this world needs radical creativity. I love that, yeah, um, and yeah, a little plug for the Haven, the Haven project. It's on, uh, it's on uh, Apple Podcasts and things. You can hear Graham and I's voices if you want. Yeah, <laughs> cool, awesome. 
Um, yeah, maybe we'll head over to like the last section of the podcast now. So thank you all so much for sharing your ideas and talking about what you're passionate about, what you're working on. Um, now it's the point where we try to combine those together and create something new. Uh, so I'm going to give you about 10 minutes to come up with anything creative. It can be a play, like an art piece, a uh, skit, uh, like just a pitch for something, whatever you would like that communicates or shows some aspect of the science we've discussed using the skills of the artist. And I'm going to actually go away for 10 minutes and come back and then you can <laughs> surprise me with what you have. Okay. Uh, oh my so God. Mission accepted. Yeah, and I'm setting a timer, so I will be back in 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave you to it. Unless there's any questions before I go. I think we got this. Okay, I believe in you. I think you got Okay. It. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My hands are sweating. You're going to have to help us on the sciencey part. We can package it in the in any way you want, but you have to maybe you guys can decide what would be a good drama ensued research idea. <laughs> Honestly, I think it would be so delightful to have a play that is about pig poop. And then everyone's poop has its own virtual reality. Like, what What will your poop reveal about you? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh immerse, immerse in your poo. Immersive feces, coming soon. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of creating a virtual yeah. space for the audience to work, to walk through. Because I think that's also a way that makes makes the science more approachable when you can see it physically. Rather than just trying to think it and conceptualize it, you actually see it presented. That's You can barcode different species and that's so cool. Does right. it actually look like a little scanner? Yeah. Like, you know, no, like, a, like a, just like a certain part of the DNA that you know for a fact is like, it's like the same within all species, but like different within different species, so. Like, that could be uh, something like that. So there's something like that for bacteria, actually, so that could work. One of them's, like, super serious and hardcore, and the other one is like, yeah, whatever, I study poop all day. <laughs> what do you want from me? I don't know if that That's makes sense. That's so cool. That, you know, that makes so much sense. Welcome back, Sam. Okay, welcome, Sam. Hello. Welcome back, Sam. Okay, so <laughs> this is the idea. Think okay. of immersive Van Gogh. Have you seen that? It's like all the projections in, a, in like the room of his art. Okay, you're in an exhibition, all okay. right? And you have been welcomed by these two scientists who are gonna be showing you this microbiome scanner thing, right? Okay. It scans so, barcodes. It scans, scans barcodes. It scans barcodes okay. of microbiome. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you walk in and you, you get like a little white coat and all you're all like with the audience ready to see this like new uh, scanner. And uh, as the drama ensues between your two hosts, you have like a real scientist and then an actor scientist, kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of scenario. And as their conflict kind of goes with trying to show you the best aspects of like this scanner that like maybe they think different features are better, I don't know. They scan <laughs> these like these little pieces of poo. And then like as they scan them, the whole world of the microbiome just like explodes into like a projection of like this little world and each one has its own little world with different characters and you get to see how like each character uh and their conflicts with each other in this little world mirrors the conflict between the scientists and the core is like how they're not so different from the from the fecal matter of pigs because everyone has 
a heart, and everyone... everybody poops. Yeah. <laughs> and it it's always more beneficial when schools of thought collaborate because just like the bacterial worlds that are all working together for different functions, we have to all collaborate as well. Yeah, moral rainbows, moral of the story. <laughs> ten <laughs> minutes, not bad. Ten minutes. Spinning DNA. <laughs> Woo, ten minutes and poo. <laughs> Perfect, I, I love it. <laughs> Do you have a title, like, does it have a, a title, a, a name? Uh, yeah, Do, did we come we up with anything? Like, we got to, like, Digital immersive experience, and then we stopped. Oh, oh. shooting, shooting the shit. <gasps> shooting the shit, scanning microbiomes, and your drama. Yeah, per- perfect. I love it. That'll be the episode title as well. I love that. Oh, oh, and we forgot that the scientists actually scan their own poo in like a huge rage of like, oh, you can't like they have this huge conflict and they scan each other's and then you get to see the inner turmoil of each mm. scientist. Yeah, I think I came in just at the end of that one. That was the first thing I heard when I re-entered here was, nice. was the scanning of each other. Sam was like, of course we went with poop. I'm like, I kind of figured that that would be perhaps a reoccurring theme. <laughs> So shooting the shit, scanning microbiomes and your drama, the immersive experience. Yes. <laughs> I'll write it down. That might be too long of a title, but anyway. Well, thank you so much for coming up with your ideas and sharing what you're working on and all of that. Um, and thank you so much for being on the episode. Uh, I definitely thank think it was you. a lot of fun. It was so um, fun. <laughs> So before we go, is there anything that any of you would like to promote or plug? And I'll make sure to put links to anything in descriptions and stuff as well. If you have anything you want people to go look at or check out or anything. <laughs> no. So I have Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> I have academic Twitter. Perfect. Academic Twitter. Um, I mean, you can follow me on Instagram at jessbshortandgolden, where we will be posting various immersive content, hopefully, for the projects I'm doing. Um, you can also take a look at, uh, I will send you the link, Sam, um, Hadaya's Hoshula uh, Darmstadt has um, a bunch of projects page, and one of the projects we have uh, worked on, so you can just see a little bit of what the this program in Germany is doing for immersive experience. So. Awesome. <laughs> All I have is Twitter. My Twitter's <laughs> at Maddie Arsenault. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Trying to get a following. <laughs> I have, I, have uh, I will follow you. Thanks. Uh, and my Instagram is at Instagram 999, spelled like my name. Follow me if, you, if you're inclined. I re- very rarely post, but when I post things about theater I'm making, that's where I'll be posting. Perfect. Awesome. Um, yeah, I don't have much else. I just have my Instagram, so it's my name, N-A-D-I-N underscore I-D-R. Awesome. Uh, I'll do a little plug for something that Graham and Jess are also a part of for our Shot in the Dark. It's our radio show that Graham directed, and Jess is the voice actor on that you should go listen to. And I'll put yes, to please, that. please go see so. a shot in, shot in the Dark. <laughs> it's full of beautiful space uh, adventures. Please go mm. take a listen. It was <laughs> yeah. so much. It's so much fun. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> it's it's very fun. It's very good. It's a sci-fi mystery adventure on Pluto. So definitely <laughs> check that out. 
All right, so I'll include links to all of that um, in the description. Um, but yeah, I just want to thank you all again for being here. Uh, and thank you to anyone who might be listening. Um, and with that, I guess we'll wrap up the episode. So uh, Ooh, until next you, time, bye. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.